0: Hello and welcome back to the Prospect podcast, where we speak to the brightest minds and talk about the ideas that matter in politics, arts and society. My name's Sarah and I'm editorial assistant at Prospect and today I'm joined by Alex Dean, who is our senior editor and an award-winning journalist on law and the constitution. For the most recent issue of the magazine, Alex wrote a feature tackling a really alarming question – Is the government trying to stuff the ballot box for future elections? In his piece, Alex argues that the recently passed Elections Act poses a threat to the independence of the Electoral Commission. Alex spoke to its current chair, John Pullinger, who agreed that the Commission's independence was in jeopardy. So why does this piece of legislation imperil our democracy and why isn't it headline news? So, Alex, thank you so much for joining us today. I know you've only had to move a few meters from your desk to be here, but we still really appreciate it. So first of all, can you just tell us a little bit about the Electoral Commission and what it is?
1: Yeah, um, the Electoral Commission is basically the regulator of UK elections. It's composed of 10 commissioners and essentially they are tasked with a combination of uh, the administrative um, at a very high level ensuring a smooth running of the vote and they do that in combination with uh, what are called returning officers who are more on the ground um, and they'll you know the electoral commission will go around polling stations to make sure everything's been carried out as it should be um, and then also ensuring the integrity of the vote which is sort of related but different. Um, And that basically means making sure that there's nothing untoward happening with, for example, the the spending by a political party um, during the course
0: of a campaign. So it's kind of two quite different roles there. On one level, it's practical, overseeing the day-to-day side of things. And then on the other side, it's the really important big principles, making sure that we have a democracy, basically.
1: Yeah, that's a really good way of putting it, actually. Um, And then there's an extra element Uh, which might be worth mentioning which is about the information um, available to voters so you know what is the right to vote worth if no one knows how to do it (laughs) so so the electoral commission monitors the accuracy and ensures there's um accurate information in the run-up to polling day
0: so big and important job. So basically, my next question, I just wanted to, yeah, first of all, get that out of the way for those of us who are not as informed about the Electoral Commission as we should be. Although I doubt that's that many of our prospect podcast listeners. Um, but I just wanted to ask, why is this act so concerning and what made you decide to write this piece?
1: Right. So the Elections Act, which passed uh, in late April, has received you know, a bit of publicity. But where it has, it's tended to focus on voter ID. So now, obviously, we don't need ID. We don't need to show it in a polling station when we go to vote. And we will going forward. Um, I think there's some discussions to the exact date that that's going to kick in from. It didn't kick in for the local elections, obviously, but it's going too soon. Um, And there's been a lot of, I think, justified criticism about that provision because what you end up doing is... Effectively disenfranchising uh, certain groups who are disproportionately, you know, poorer uh, from ethnic minority backgrounds, and actually more likely to vote Labour. So there's a party political advantage to the measure, um, and voter fraud is incredibly rare in the UK. So it seems like a solution in search of a problem. Um, so that's one part of the act that has been controversial. But I th- I saw that there's another sort of Equally, if not more alarming, elements of the legislation that had received basically no pickup, um, and that's the provisions on the commission. Um, so, you know, it's, to put it in its most fundamental, for a democracy to work, certain conditions have to be met. At, you know, we have to, no one can interfere with us as we're casting our vote, um, they have to be counted accurately, you know, etc. etc. And an important condition is that there's an independent regulator and it can't be up to the government of the day to dictate how the regulator behaves or it's mocking its own homework. Um, and the Electoral Commission, founded you know, 20 or so years ago, has always been independent and this legislation strips it of its independence. Um, and that's just not just my own view, uh, that's the view of the Commission itself.
0: Yeah, which is quite scary. I mean, I know you spoke a lot to the chair of the commission, is it John Pullingham, hope I'm pronouncing that correctly. Um, Could you just tell us a little bit more about what he had to say about these measures?
1: Yeah. um, So when the Elections Act first appeared, I suppose in draft form, all of the commissioners, including John, all of them except one, wrote a letter. Uh, basically saying that they were alarmed at at the provisions on the Electoral Commission. Um, But clearly the government basically ignored them and and pushed it through anyway. And um, so when I sat down with him interviewing for the piece, I basically said, do we now have legislation on the statute book that is inconsistent with your independence? And he said, yes, (laughs) which is And he's not a man prone to exaggeration at all, he's actually a very careful speaker um, and I got the impression he uh, had decided that it was important enough to be worth an intervention actually Um, and so we talked about why that is and uh, he essentially explained that, I mean in the piece there's a quote I use which is uh, from John where he says a government has only one policy and strategy Priority, you'd think, and that's to win the next election, which is quite a stark way of putting it. But if the government starts being able to guide the work of the Commission and starts issuing strategies for the Commission, that starts to become worryingly close to uh, sort of loading the dice in its own favour. Um, and when I sp- spoke to John Pullinger he was amazed actually at how little international precedent there was for measures like this. And he, he tried to get that across and said that the Commission had searched far and wide for um, international precedents and they hadn't been able to find any at all.
0: And as a journalist, how did it feel when John spoke to you so openly about his concerns?
1: Um, it felt, uh, I suppose it felt alarming and it did feel surprising. But then I suppose it's of a piece with this government's aversion to scrutiny and I've uh, you know watched the attack on the Human Rights Act and the restrictions on protest and you know the attack on the national broadcasters with increasing horror <laughs> and this was sort of an extra step <laughs> in that process where I thought crikey they're you know this is almost more extreme even than those because it's um, no matter what a government does no matter how objectionable its policies might be, at least you can always kick them out. Of course, even after these changes we'll still be able to kick the government out, but it's the chipping away at that principle um that I found yeah, pretty scary actually.
0: Yeah, I mean, I was scared when I was reading your piece, to be honest. Um, my question next question would just be, you've mentioned that the government's intention is to in some way guide the commission. Can you explain exactly the mechanism that they have said they're going to try and use to do that?
1: Yeah, Um, so essentially they will issue a regular policy and strategy statement that the commission will be bound by law to follow. Um, Now what that is likely to look like, um, we have actually had a draft policy and strategy statement now but it was quite. Um, it was an illustrative example rather than a concrete one, um, and it was really, in many ways, the bits that were alarming were a restatement of the stuff that was alarming in the legislation itself about how the commission had to be guided by, you know, the executive's priorities and that sort of language, which makes you sort of um, raises your suspicions. Um, but essentially, those things we talked about that the commission is in charge of. Um, could be it could be directed to change the way it behaves on those fronts so for example campaign finance if the government wants to make a change it's unlikely to say uh, you know to, to advocate for a change that is overtly political what's more likely is that it would make what it thought what it said was a principled case for a change but in practice when you looked into it, happened to advantage the governing party and happened to disadvantage the opposition (laughs) and that's the sort of thing i'll be looking for when the first real policy and strategy statement is issued
0: do you have any idea what i mean just speculatively what kind of thing that might look like
1: well i think actually quite a good sort of abstract comparison is the voter id thing where the government could say um that there's a problem of voter fraud. Now that's highly questionable, and we're going to introduce these measures to remedy it. And then in practice, it harms the opposition and it benefits the governing party. I think it'll be things like that, and it could be on. Um, yeah, I mean, you know, uh, really not an expert here, but like the location of polling stations or something. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. That sort of yeah. thing, where or the um, the way polling stations are staffed and that sort of technical thing um, or laws to you know, donations to campaigns i suppose that's a big one um, and it's not just elections remember it's referendums um, and a lot of the reason the electoral commission has been controversial is because of its fine of vote leave um, so i think it's across the spectrum of uh, campaign finance regulation the whole bundle of administrative stuff and then the inf- information stuff Um, and then you start to combine all that and even technical changes could end up, you know, swinging, maybe not swinging the vote but swinging a chunk of it at least.
0: So you've mentioned that, that the Commissioners made some controversial decisions in the past and you hint or maybe suggest even, a stronger word, that the government's motivations for this could possibly lie In its feelings towards some of these penalties, for example, that were given to vote leave. Could you just tell us a little bit more about the different penalties that the Commission has levied in recent history and why they were controversial?
1: Yes. Um, Essentially, the Commission issues fines across the political spectrum, and if you go on its website and you look at you know a very detailed list of recent fines and the sums and uh, the reason for the sanction it quickly disabuses you of any um, suspicion of bias on the part of the commission basically because um, there's been fines for vote leave which was a big controversial one but there's also been fines for stronger in <laughs> the stronger in europe campaign the official remain campaign um, there's been fines for the tory party but there's also been fines for the Labour Party and there's been fines for Momentum, the Corbynite campaign group, um, where I think that was a fairly sizeable fine. So um, you look at those lists and you, you think actually, uh, it's difficult, at least on a first glance, to pick out um, any sort of target, you, know, you wouldn't see any sort of targeted thing there. But um, some of the fines have been more controversial than others. The Vote Leave one, Uh, caught the imagination of Brexiteers because it seemed to play into this idea of the establishment civil service blob interfering in democracy basically Um, that was a sort of 60,000, 70,000 pound I think it was 60,000 pounds um, for a very complicated case that gets more tangly the more you look into it but uh, serious electoral offences there uh, and Voli then dropped its appeal and paid in full um, but there, there's been a resentment about that that's never gone away in, in you know, certain quarters of our politics and then wrapped up with the same case uh, was the case against Darren Grimes a prominent young uh, pro-Brexit campaigner who appealed and won um, and Pullinger actually in the piece tells me that the commission did get that one wrong um, but that sort of stoked the fire even more because then that was seen as the commission. Uh, you know, it was bad enough when they <laughs> it was bad enough when they imposing fines that were successful, but when they impose fines that fail, somehow that it's inconsistency. But both were taken together to show a bias in the commission. And then the Tory party itself um, had a seventy thousand pound fine because of spending. Yeah, complicated thing about mm-hmm. listeners weren't remember national versus. Uh, local spending is a whole complicated thing But it was 2014 by-elections And the 2015 general election And they got, a, that's a big fine £70,000 um, You know, some of them are £1,000 for uh, Missing a box On a, you know, form, But uh, anyway, so £70,000 is serious stuff And that Added to the sense amongst You know, the Brexiteer side of the Tory party That they were being victimised now a lot of those people have been in government or they're in government right now. So I think the most charitable possible interpretation is that it's a coincidence and it's a matter of judgment <laughs> whether it is a coincidence or whether it's uh, it's more than that.
0: It sounds positively Orwellian to me and I just wondered what the other people that you spoke to for this piece had to say because you pulled in an impressive raft of legal thinkers to talk to, you, from Shami Chakrabarti to Igor Judge, I think. Um, would you be able to just talk through what some of those people, what their thoughts were on this act?
1: Yeah, so Shami was really interesting because um, we were able to talk about, uh, this was a conversation back and forth over email with Shami, um, and she was uh, talking about the comparison with the United States and you know, the extent of that comparison an interesting thing because if you talk about rigged elections or you know uh, people refusing to accept a result or something like that everybody instantly thinks of the capital insurrection um, and Donald Trump's supporters and so a question I was trying to wrestle with with this piece was how close are we to that level of dysfunctionality Um, and Shammy basically said that there is something when we might not be there yet but there is an element at least of the Trumpian in these proposals um, so I was actually interested to hear her explicitly and without prompting make that comparison um, Igor Judge was equally interesting because it, along with a few others David Blunkett was one of them George Young was another in the House of Lords he led uh, a rebellion, basically. Obviously, turned out was unsuccessful and the government pressed ahead anyway. But there was this really strong rebellion in the Lords. Um, and so speaking to Igor Judge, uh, sort of thing I asked him was, when the strategy statement comes out, what then? And he was saying, well, we need to, you know, lobby really hard to amend the statement, if it's anything that infringes on the independence of the commission more than we've seen already. So yeah, and then a few others aspects of practicing lawyers and, you know, um, experts in electoral law and stuff and tried to <laughs> piece it together in my head. Um, but there were very few people I spoke to who didn't think it was a big deal.
0: And something that you've kind of touched on before um, is that this bill comes against what I think many of us would describe as a concerning backdrop for the British legal system, for the rule of law, for our institutions. I mean, this week, just down the road from us. We're in Westminster recording this. Um, criminal barristers are on strike because of cuts to legal aid. Last week, Rob announced the new Bill of Rights, which has had widespread criticism, including from the Law Society. Something you argue in your piece is that this Elections Act might be the most serious threat of all, but it seems to be getting the least coverage. Um, do you stand by that, you know, today with these more recent developments? And what is it about this act that isn't capturing the public's imagination
1: I think my answer is my answer to both halves of the question is kind (laughs) of the same why is it so scary because it's happening by stealth why does no one know it's happening because it's by stealth if you see what I mean um and yeah I, I do stand by it actually I'm absolutely mortified at um the the British Bill of Rights bill or whatever it is that was announced last week and, and the attack on our human rights but I think that this bill is a power grab in in almost a literal sense. It's quite rare that you it's not metaphorically that you mean that term but I, I think here it kind of applies literally. Another reason why I think it's gone under the radar is simply that it's quite technical and um, you know I'm a journalist who spends a lot of time working on this sort of thing and I had to have lots of people explain it to me lots of different times and then you know mm-hmm. run it back past them to stress test my understanding of it and you know still only <laughs> feel like I've you know just about got it so um, I think there's a, a real risk that when something's technical it's it's easier to miss the horror in the detail
0: yeah I mean I completely agree with that. And had I not read your piece, I don't think I would have come across it or understood it at all. So thank you so much for writing such an interesting feature of Prospect. <laughs> and um, thank you so much for joining us today. And thank you all very much for tuning in to hear our discussion. If you enjoyed this podcast, Escape the Echo Chamber and grab a copy of our new issue of Prospect Magazine. Or go to subscription.prospectmagazine.co.uk to subscribe. In the current issue, you'll find writing from Sheila Hancock, Sam Friedman, David Miliband, as well as Alex's important, if terrifying, feature. Goodbye, stay safe, and listen out for the next episode of the Prospect podcast next week.